This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. On today's show, is Canada about to see a wave of people who've lost their jobs because of COVID-19 vaccine mandates and a whole bunch of legal challenges because of that? We'll hear from an expert in labor law. We'll also talk to the nurse who gave the first ever COVID shot in the city of Calgary. She's been on the front lines the whole time, just retired, and we've heard a lot about Facebook, but there was also a lot of talk about how damaging Instagram can be, especially to our kids. So is this country facing a wave of terminations, people being fired as mandatory workplace vaccination policies come into effect. We know what's happening at, you know, many government levels. Some employers are bringing it, other institutions, things like that. And we know there are some people who will not be vaccinated. So ultimately, push will come to shove and people will lose their jobs. There's no doubt about it. How many it shakes out to in the end remains to be seen, but there will be some for sure. And it it could be a sizable number. So uh, what do we need to know? And uh, what are the legalities surrounding this? We're going to chat now with Howard Levitt, who is the senior partner with Levitt Shake Employment and Labor Law. Uh, Howard, thank you for your time this morning. Really appreciate you joining us. Of course. Okay. When we're talking about this, I guess the numbers remain to be seen, but as, as a labor lawyer, are you hearing from your colleagues and are you hearing within your firm that there are people that are definitely reaching out and saying, hey, I'm losing my job because I'm not vaccinated? It's just beginning to start because, frankly, there aren't many companies who have yet required vac- or compulsory vaccinations in terms of employment. Most have said you've got a couple of weeks or you've mm-hmm. got a month, and then, then we may require it. But what I say to them is you might not have a case. That's because, the thing, right? Yes, because I think employers have a stronger argument than employees on this subject. Look, COVID has devastated our psychology, our sociology, our lifestyle, our economy, workplaces everywhere. It's just had devastating impact in terms of mental health. And employers have a legal obligation to keep the workplace safe. Simple as that. Occupational Health and Safety Act and common law obligation to keep the workplace safe. The best way to keep the workplace safe is mandatory vaccinations. That's just a fact. So if you say you have to be vaccinated, employees say, well, I won't be, and you have to terminate them, Who's the court going to side with? I think probably the employer. What what will be the determining factor? I mean, the rights of employment versus, as you say, the employer does have an obligation. You know, if they've got 99 people in their office who are vaccinated and they've got one who isn't, the 99 should outweigh it in terms of the public health risk, right? Well, I'm not sure if I do it on a pure arithmetical basis that way, but yes, it, the 99 versus one simply means that there's one. There's not very many people to potentially terminate. Right. But uh, if and you can argue if 99 are vaccinated, it's not much of a public health risk. But the employer wants to say we want everybody vaccinated because we want to be able to tell our customers everyone's vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about coming here. That's one thing. We want vaccinated people coming in and maybe you'll contract some code from them, which although you may not get sick, you may pass it on to your kids or someone else. And and it's not absolute immunity, vaccines, it's largely immunity. So if you want to avoid risk entirely, require vaccinations. It's the gold medal standard. So if an employee is going to say, I refuse to vaccinate and they don't have a medical or creed exemption, and those are very, very, very narrow, then 
I don't think a court's going to be very sympathetic. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's what it'll come down to, the battle of the individual rights versus the right to providing a, work, a safe workplace and, and, yes. and doing right. your business, you right? It. You're right. And privacy rights, you can argue, versus yeah. safety rights. And safety trumps privacy every time at law. Okay. Um, what about, and I know there was some distinction when this all started, there was some discussion about, you know what, if you put that in as a qualification for employment before you hire somebody, no worries, no problem. But if you bring it in after the fact with somebody who is already working for you and changing the terms of their employment, that could be a little trickier when it comes to the legality of it. Well, look, there's no issue whatsoever if you make it a condition of employment, again, subject to a medical or creed exemption, which are very narrow, but it's, yes, you can't generally change terms of employment, but the fundamental term of employment is a safe workplace. So you already have a legal contract with your employee, even if it's not in writing, to maintain a safe workplace, because that's written in by statute into every contract. So you're not really changing a term of employment. You're simply um, finding a route to enforce that contract. So I don't think that's a very strong argument, that it's a change of terms of employment and therefore a constructive dismissal. I think that's a weak argument. Lawyers might be saying that in order to try and get business, but right. they won't, they won't, the business won't last very long if the first case <laughs> loses um, and has to pay a lot of legal fees for nothing. <laughs> Is there a difference between, I know governments are bringing this in because they have the ability to do that. Some private employers are, some aren't. Is there a difference between um, a government agency bringing this in versus a private, do the private entities have a little more leeway in this regard? Well, I think maybe the other way around. Okay. If you're the Parliament of Canada, you can legislate it. You can legislate that everyone has to be vaccinated, even if they work from home. A private employer could never do that because it's totally unreasonable. What do you care if somebody working from home is vaccinated or not? They're not interacting with anyone else. If you try and impose that as a private employer, you're going to lose any dismissal case. If you say that as a, as a government, a government with legislative authority, I mean, like the legislature of Alberta or like the Parliament of Canada within your particular domains, well, you can't, you can't win a case if your legislation permits the employer's conduct. Gotcha. Okay. And we just got a text and this is, you know, I guess it's the point. It says in this case, governments and businesses can impose any dictum they want. All they have to do is frame it as health or safety issues, um, which I guess is true. But, you know, when it comes to law, we often look at precedent. Is there precedent? I mean, there has to be some sort of threshold they have to meet, right? Well, if you're talking about legislation, there's no threshold. Parliament can be arbitrary if it wishes to. A parliament can do anything. There's only charter protection against legislation, and this readily doesn't impact the charter because it's uh, other than, again, medical and creed exemptions, which are there anyway. So employers have to be reasonable in terms of their policies, not so much government. But it is reasonable. That's the point. It's not reasonable to say people working from home have to be vaccinated. That's ridiculous. What, what do you care? But it is reasonable for an employer to say, you can't opt out by working from home. We want you at the office. We mm-hmm. require you to attend the office. The employee says, well, I won't be vaccinated, so therefore I want to be accommodated by working from home. And the employer can say, absolutely not. We want you here, and we want you vaccinated here. So what are you predicting? We're hearing a wave of terminations and all kinds of legal challenges. Ultimately, will that first case be the test, and then after that, everything goes away? Are you expecting this to be something that dominates our courts going forward? I think it's lawyers trying to create business for themselves, making these predictions of massive waves of terminations and lawsuits. You have to be prudent. I would say to any employee coming to my office, issue a claim within the two years, then hold off. Wait until somebody else is depressed. You don't want to waste a lot of money on this because you're probably going to lose. 
and then you'll not only pay my cost, you'll pay the employer's dignity. Right. I mean, that's the other side of it, right? I mean, the, the money can add up in a hurry. Oh, you go to trial on this and, and you argue constitutional issues, you're going to be into hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. <laughs> hey, Howard, good question from somebody. Uh, last one, I'll let you go. Uh, if you do get sacked because you refuse to get vaccinated, all the other you know, conditions applying to termination of employment would be there. Severance, all the rest of that stuff. None of that changes, right? No, no, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying if you get sacked, you don't have to, you won't get any severance. Really? Why? There's no issue of firing someone and that's paying cost. severance. That's, that's easy. I'm saying I think this is cause if you refuse to vaccinate. Interesting. Okay. And wow. You're, and, you're in an, and if you work in a location or environment or in a job where you have close contact with other people, whether they be coworkers, customers, members of the public, I think it is cause to not vaccinate. Look, there's no case on point, but that's my best view based on based on general press and the public safety issues in the workplace. The courts are siding with the employers on these things, generally. Interesting. Okay. Uh, great insight. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate your time. That's okay. Howard Levitt, senior partner with Levitt Shake Employment and Labor Law. We're almost two full years. We're, we're, we're getting close to two years with this whole COVID thing. And it's been interesting to see how it's gone along. So th- I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We're going to chat with an RN from Calgary who has been on the front lines for the entire thing of this, literally. She's been doing the testing. She's been doing the vaccinating and sort of dealing with this right where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. We're chatting now with Lois Eady, an RN from Calgary. Uh, Lois, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. You're welcome. Um you you just come to the end of a career, a long career as an RN, wrapped up the last couple of years of it working in public health. Um, just tell us what that experience was like. I know it's different than anything else we've seen in the healthcare system over the course of your career. What was it like working on the front lines as a tester and, and as a vaccinator as we got into that program? Um, it, it was very interesting. It was very satisfying. Um, I found it quite a unique way to... Um, and, and a career, um, part of the, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it, the excitement of COVID and the whole experience of it. It was something that I'd never experienced yeah. in, in my career. And, I, you know, we, I think excitement is a fair word, right? Because when, when, the, when your field is, is healthcare and, and public health, when something, you know, completely new and um, novel comes along, there is a sense of, okay, this is what we're here for, right? This is what we've trained for. Yes, yes. We um, always, um, it wasn't um, if the pandemic was coming, it was when. And then you get shocked, oh my gosh, it's here. When you started doing this and you were first working as a tester, and I remember back at the time, there was a lot of people really anxious. We didn't really know exactly what we were dealing with, and we got shut right down last March, um, and people were concerned. What was it like being someone who was doing the tests and dealing with the potential COVID patients? Um, were you anxious about that at times? Um, no, I, I, I didn't feel anxious um, I've reflected back on that, wondering how I felt. But no, I, I don't remember feeling anxious about it. Um, we, we started out um, by swabbing people in their homes, actually going to them. Hmm. And then it very quickly escalated um, where the number of clients needing swabbed had increased. 
and this thing was spreading. And so then we got them to come to our um, walk-in clinics and very quickly um, drive-throughs uh, yeah. popped up and uh, and it changed like that, yeah. What about the patients you were dealing with? Were they, what was their mindset when this all started and they were told you need to go get tested for COVID? Were they feeling some anxiety? Were they, were they frustrated? I mean, what, what were you hearing from them? Um, yeah, they, some of them were, were anxious. Um, some of them were very nonchalant. Um, you know, they were, they, um, you know, they were experiencing cold-like symptoms, yeah. which were all, um, we're all very used to that. And, but yet there is this, um, anxiousness about it. Like, what will this, can this develop into something like I'll end up in ICU or, or whatever. So there was always that unknown that created a bit, bit of anxiety. Um, also, anxiety over just simply getting the test. Um, yeah, no kidding, right? We'd all heard the horror stories. Well, yeah. Um, people would come in with preconceived notions of um, the nasal swab yes. or, or the throat swab, and uh, they'd hear stories about one or the other, and <laughs> they would... Um, think that it was going to be more horrendous than maybe it was going to be and and they uh, demand um or request <laughs> um certain kind of tests yeah, and yeah. some uh, whether they wanted one or the other depending on what they'd heard from friends or through social media and sometimes we couldn't always offer them what they wanted because we were um, limited to what supplies sure. we were we had gotten that day. And, of course, you always had to keep back a small amount of either supply or the other because some people had medical reasons why we couldn't do one swab or the other. And uh, that meant, but most people, after the swabbing was done, no matter what kind it was and what their preconceived notions were, were for the most part pleasantly surprised and yeah. thought it was for the most part no big deal. I believe it. I mean, but the horror stories, Lois. I mean, good mm-hmm. lord, we were telling you it's going to go right up into your brain, and it's the worst thing you've ever had, and you know. And then I think, I think probably most Albertans have had it by now and said, yeah, okay, it wasn't that bad. It was not. It's not comfortable, but that's not, right, and it's such a, a split second um, <laughs> of your time and and that to get it done yeah and and as far as um feeling you know I to go back to how I was feeling yeah. I, I, I don't think I felt anxious because we were always 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 supplied with a good amount of PPE okay and I felt the PPE um, was proper you know yeah so you felt and you so, were supported the way you needed to be Exactly. Good. Exactly. I didn't feel at risk in that way. Now, you delivered the first vaccination of all COVID vaccinations in the city of Calgary. Is it congratulations oh. in order? That's pretty cool. I mean, that's kind of historic in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Like I said, uh, my last year of nursing has been uh, quite remarkable. <laughs> um, and I have a lot of um, good memories to look back on this past year. Um, yeah, <laughs> I remember back when that vaccination program started um, and the people who were, including me, we could not wait to get down and, and get our first shot. Was it was it almost like a celebratory feeling at that time as these people who've been waiting and want to get back to normal and want to get protected were just so eager to get the shot? Was it a really positive time to be delivering vaccinations to Albertans? Uh, 
Um, for, for the for the most part, it was. People, like you said, were uh, very um, happy, appreciative, excited, yeah. um, felt privileged. Um, yeah, but, you know, there, were, there was always um, some of the other feelings, too, that um, scaredness and anxiousness. Now, they'd been in their homes um, probably nine to ten months isolating, mm-hmm. and now they had to come out into the public. They had to stand out in lines. Big crowds. Yeah, and, and that made um, quite a few people uh, kind of nervous. So when people get nervous, sometimes um, they react differently than they normally would. Um, and so sometimes you had some people that were quite anxious by the time they got to the front of the line um, and uh, were next in line. They'd waited a while. They'd been with other people. They felt vulnerable, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm sure they were quite relieved and excited as they walked out of the building. Yes, no <laughs> doubt about it. Now, how yeah. has it changed over the course of our vaccination program? Because we know the people who were eager were there day one, and it's mm-hmm. sort of, it. we know it's changed. So has the mood changed in our vaccination clinics? Are you noticing a different reaction from people? Um, yes, Um I've, I've heard from the, I, I, I have led some clinics mm-hmm. these, these, and haven't actually been doing the vaccinating as of late, but I've heard from nurses who are doing vaccinating that, um, yeah, the, a lot of the clients, when they get to their chair, are angry now, yep. um, you know, and um, just angry that they have to get the shot so they can um, vac- uh, vacation work or sure. eat out and so that nurse does get the rant yes um but then um they ultimately do give their consent for the vaccine because they, i guess they feel like they're between a rock and a hard hard place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and they haven't um they've lost their um ability to make a choice i guess and people a lot of people feel very strongly about making personal choices for themselves. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So how are you feeling? I mean, you you just you just um, walked away from a, a career as an RN just last week, um, leaving in the middle of a pandemic like this. Is that a good thing? I mean, I'm sure you're still going to miss it, but is it sort of like this is a pretty good time because things are absolutely crazy right now? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am um, really going to miss it. I nursed for 46 years, um, and it's, really um different this week to not have my phone dinging dinging <laughs> dinging with re- requests for shifts it's it's almost eerily silent um but i feel it, it's time to go um i had a very busy last um year and three quarters and um it's time to just uh, take a step sure. step back um I, I, um, yeah, but I will miss it dearly and everybody. The one thing about, um, being part of this as a nurse, we were not isolated at home. We got to go out, we got to go to work and we got to socialize. Yeah. Um, so we didn't experience that isolation like a lot of people. We met lots of new people, worked with a great bunch of individuals, all working hard 
you know, to protect the community yeah. and and met many of the grateful public. Um, that and that was the most common response from the public: gratefulness, yeah, and thanking us uh, for what what we were doing. Um, yeah, um, being out doing the vaccinating and doing the swabbing, I'm sure was exa- uh, completely different from those working the intense situations in the ICU. Right, yeah, exactly. An entirely different yeah. experience altogether. Well, I will yeah. add my thanks um, Thank to you. all the others. And uh, and I, I don't know what it is. I've always said um, nurses are a special breed. What, what you've done over the course of that career I think it takes a very special person to do that kind of work. And uh, thank you for your years of service and being part of the front lines over the past couple of years. And uh, enjoy whatever comes next, Lois. Well, thank you very much. I will. Thank you very much for joining us. That is Lois Eady, who has just retired as a nurse after a 45-year career in healthcare. It's been a bad week for Facebook. They've... um, you know, for a lot of people out there, uh, what was revealed by the whistleblower really, I don't think, came as any surprise. Um, and uh, just <laughs> just navigating what goes on on Facebook has been a pretty clear indicator to most people that uh, this is going to cause some problems. Um, but there's another app that Facebook owns called Instagram. And if you're of a certain generation like me, uh, you probably don't know a whole lot about it. It's very, very popular, though, especially with young people. And it comes with its own kind of problems. Not quite the same as Facebook. Uh, primarily, it's just, what is it, Sarah? It's just pictures, primarily videos, right? Yep, just pictures. So you're not, you're, not, you're not writing words so much or anything you like that. You can put a caption and right. all that stuff, but it's not really the ranting cited no. like, like Facebook is. Exactly, yeah. It's just, it, it's pictures. Here, here's where I am. Here's what I'm doing, that, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and as I said, incredibly popular. Billions of people use it all the time. Um, so what are some of the concerns, and, and how can we help kids try and deal with the concerns that we find on there? We're going to chat now with Christine Eldersma, who is a social media expert at the nonprofit Common Sense Media. Christine, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I I think this is an issue that we all need to be spending a lot more time talking about because social media, all the platforms are so pervasive. They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere, especially for young people. Um, Have we sort of been naive to what's going on with our kids as they spend hours and hours and hours on these platforms? Well, you know, I think it's it's become sort of a social experiment none of us really signed up for. Um, And our kids are, are the subjects. Um, and it is very ubiquitous, and it's very difficult for parents to keep up with it all because not only are the the big name apps, but then there are tiny apps that pop up here and there yes. that become very popular overnight sometimes. So it, yes, it's very it's very difficult. It's almost impossible, I think. But let's start dealing with some of the concerns that we know exist around Instagram. And I think the whistleblower did a fairly good job pointing out some of the problems that it's causing in the younger generation. Uh, do you agree with what she said? And and what did she point out as being the primary concerns with Instagram? Well, you know, I think. Um, what has come out in the research that wasn't um, shared initially is that it can negatively impact young people's Mm -hmm. self-esteem. So body image and and different kinds of pressures around identity. Um, And I, I mean, obviously 
the research does bear that out, especially for kids um, who are already feeling vulnerable. And I think that's that's a key. I don't think that all teens necessarily come away from Instagram feeling negatively about themselves. But I think if your teen is in a, in a vulnerable place, already feeling anxious, already feeling depressed, and then they're scrolling through Instagram for long periods of time, um, the research does show that it can definitely negatively impact how your teen is feeling about themselves. And is it as simple as we're taking a look, and like I said before, when you're taking a look at somebody that posts something on Instagram, they are posting them looking their very best, doing the coolest thing they're doing that day in the coolest place. I mean, it's a snapshot of the very, very best moment of their life. And and then the comparison is, well, well, I'm not doing that. I don't look that good. Is that where that anxiety and that, that problem starts? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, when you see sort of, you pull back the curtain um, on what is actually happening behind those pictures, yeah. the ring light, the posing, <laughs> the the filters, the, you know, nothing about these pictures. In some cases, they're entirely Photoshopped yeah. or they're staged or, you know, or they're not in the locations where they say they're taken. So, um, yeah, the fabrication is very real. Um, and I think for teens who are just, you know, in their bedrooms, feeling anxious or depressed, um, it it can be very uh, triggering around, you know, my life sure. is not like that. Um, and of course, nobody's life is. Nobody's. But it's, it's when you're scrolling through all those pictures, it's hard to remind yourself. So, Adults, too, you know. Oh, sure. Absolutely. We, we, we can all get that FOMO going on when we're looking at it. It's like, boy, they're really yeah. having fun. I'm just sitting here scrolling on my phone. Um, but I, I, how do we, I think some adults, not all adults, obviously, are in a, in a position to have the discussion with themselves that you and I just had where, wait a minute, let's not get too wrapped up in what we're seeing here. Um, how can we give that same set of tools to our kids to say, you know what, take this all with a grain of salt and don't try and hold yourself up to this standard. How can we, how can we help our kids navigate Instagram? Well, I think saying what you just said um, to your teen is is great. I think, you know, the advice changes a little bit depending on age. So if you have a, a younger teen who is, you know, you're just considering, should I let them have an Insta- Instagram account? Should I let them get on social media? Um, I think thinking about yourself as the training wheels to help them keep their balance as they get on social media. And what I mean by that is, you know, walking them through the settings and looking at all the settings. So for instance, if you put in a birth date on Instagram that indicates you're under 16, your account is set to private by default now, which wasn't always the Mm -hmm. case. Um, But there are so many layers uh, there are DMs, there are, you know, disappearing messages, there are all sorts of features that parents might not know about and kids might not know about. So walking through those together can be really helpful. And coming from a place of curiosity around why a kid wants to go on Instagram and be on it, is it just for their friends? Are there people they want to follow in particular? Are there influencers they're interested in? Um Those are all great questions to ask and to set expectations around usage. So now you can, you know, there's also an activity sort of monitor within the app to to tell you how much time you've spent. Um, So they've tried to add these features that sort of nod at 
safety or not at trying to limit the amount of time young people spend. Um, but having very frank and ongoing conversations with your kids uh, around these social media apps is really important. And then when you, when teens get older and they're be a little more uh, reluctant to, <laughs> to maybe talk to their yes, parents yeah. <laughs> about these things. Um, and they're giving you sort of those uh, monosyllabic answers to, <laughs> to your questions. Um, coming at it a little bit from the side. So, you know, hey, uh, how are, how, what are you, what are your friends following on Instagram? Um, you know, not asking super direct questions, but um, hey, can you? I, I feel like a real nerd around this. Can you show me yeah. how this works? Um, so curiosity, rather than I'm going to catch you doing something wrong, um, and paying attention to how your teen seems to be doing around using social media, asking them how they feel when they're done using social media. Do they feel connected to their friends? Is it fun, or do they feel anxious and depressed after being on social media? That, those kind of questions can help them self-regulate also, which is really what our goal is mm-hmm. um, for ourselves and for our kids. We want them to be empowered um, to use these platforms and these tools in a way that um, makes them feel more connected and empowered rather than leaves them feeling empty or less than in some way. Now, I'm, I'm glad to hear you focusing on having the discussion and being involved with your kids' social media experience because I, I from my own experience and um, seeing how these platforms work and operate with my kids and other kids that I've been involved with, um, there, some parents can fall into a false sense of security. Oh, yeah, well, I've got the, the age restriction on there or I've got a filter or, or you know, they're locked. They're, they're not allowed to look at those sorts of things. And I think if you want to try and tell your kids that they can't do something on the Internet, you're fooling yourself because the kids know how to work those machines better than we do. And they're going to figure out a way if they want to. So it's far more important to have, like you say, that that communication situation where you can actually help them and be there with them as they go through these experiences rather than thinking that you've just prevented them from having them. That's not, is that a false sense of security or are there measures you can take technologically that you don't have to worry about this? No, I think you're absolutely right. I I think fighting tech with tech um, can, can give you a false sense of security and be sort of a trap. Um, (laughs) Uh, so, yes, there are parental controls, and I think that they can be useful if used openly um, with, again, open conversations with your kid about why you're using them um, and what you'll be looking at. Um, but I think the trust, maintaining that positive relationship with your kid, having those conversations, and if you want to use parental controls for some reason, I think being open and honest about it, um, knowing that, yes, as you say, kids can easily skirt these things. There are always loopholes. Um, sure. You can Google how to get around screen time on iOS and find you know, ways that kids have found to, to break through those parameters. Um, so absolutely, I, I think knowing that over time, their relationship with social media will likely evolve And also some of the things that we're most afraid of, you know, I think especially parents of young kids, I have an 11 year old daughter. um, So I understand the the fears, especially as kids 
start to get on the internet around online predators and, you know, some of the things that we have sort of been trained to be afraid of when really a lot of the time it is looking at uh, unrealistic images and even pressure from friends, just messaging them all the time and the drama that that can cause. It, It can be small things like that. So, um, keeping that conversation open so that your kid can come to you and say, I just don't know how to handle this. Yep. That can be much more productive than I'm going to shut this down and take your phone away. Exactly. I agree with you a hundred percent, Christine. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is Christine Elgersma, who is a social media expert at the nonprofit Common Sense Media. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Mm-hmm.